Well, if you're new, if you haven't been here again for a while, we're walking through the God story. And today we're going to actually pick back up in the historical flow of that story. We took a little bit of a break during the time of the kings as we've talked through uh, Proverbs and, and we talked through uh, the Psalms. And last week we talked about the temple uh, that was built during that time period. And so today we're going to cover pretty good chunk of history. We're going to cover from 931 BC to 586 BC. And all of that time period is what we call the divided kingdom, right? So Israel's one kingdom that we're going to see today is going to split into two. And so God, again, promised the Savior. He promised his people he'd protect them. And the Israelites were to be witnesses of God's glory to the unbelieving world and the nations that surrounded them. And part of that promise to his, his people was, if you obey Right. There will be blessing in this world. Right. If you heed to my obedience, there is going to be blessing in this world. Uh, and so we watched as God called out to Abraham. We, we saw the enslavement, the return to the promised land. God brought the judges to to lead them. Uh, and then after the judges, they, they cry out to God and say, we want to be like the world. And so what do they ask for? They ask for a human king. And, and so God relents and says, I will give that to you. And so they have Saul and David, and then they have King Solomon in this process. And weeks ago, Pastor Josh spoke to us about the shortcomings of King Saul and King David, and again, pointing us that there is a greater king that is going to come. And Solomon is no different. Solomon is going to fall into the same trap, and he's going to be led astray by his desire for his multitude of concubines and wives, and he's going to lead his people into a place of idolatry. So we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 1, we're going to see right now what leads to the division of the kingdom. Why does it split into the northern and the southern portion? So verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he didn't follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On the east hill of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Kemesh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away. The God of Israel had appeared to him twice. And although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of your son. I, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God comes to Solomon and he says, look, you disobeyed me. You married all of these foreign women. That clearly was not supposed to happen because they would turn your heart away. And that's exactly what he did. He begins to build all these, these places of worship to these other gods. And he doesn't follow the Lord as he should. And so God says, look, here's the deal. I'm going to strip away the kingdom from you. I'm going to take it from your son and give it to one of your subordinates, one of your officials. But I did make a promise to David. I did make a promise that out of his line would come the one to rule, the, the one true king. And so I'm going to hold fast to that. So I, I'm basically going to take everything away from you, Solomon, except one little small portion of the kingdom that will be reserved for the lineage of my son, David. And so as a result, God begins to raise up some adversaries and uh, he, he, the prophet goes and he, I, um, Ahijah and he speaks to Jeroboam. That was Solomon's official. And he says, look, Jeroboam, Solomon disobeyed. And so he's going to strip some of that kingdom away. He's going to turn it over to you. And so when, when Solomon hears of this, he gets angry and he attempts to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam goes and he flees off to Egypt at this time. And he spends his time down in Egypt until he hears that Solomon has died. And then he comes back to the area of Israel. Now, when, when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over. And everybody comes to him and they, and they say, Rehoboam, how are you going to rule? Are you going to rule with a heavy hand? Are you going to be harsh on us? Are you going to put a lot of restrictions and burden us? And he says, let me think about it. So for three days, Rehoboam thinks about this. And he talks to his advisors and his advisors are like, listen, lighten up on these people and they will serve you. Rehoboam has this other idea and he says, no, I don't think so. I think I'm going to be worse than my father was. I'm going to bring the hammer down on these people. And so as a result, we turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12 now, starting in verse 16. We see the response to this. When all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all of Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all of Israel. And only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. So he goes out and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to instill my authority. And he goes out and he says, I'm going to put you guys to work. And the people rebel against him. And they say, we're not going to have any of it. And so they turn to Jeroboam and they say, we want you to rule us. And Rehoboam goes back to Jerusalem and he, he leads the southern kingdom of Judah. 
So at this point now, we, we, have, the, we have the split. Okay, we, we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah at this point. And Israel would make its capital in the north in Samaria, and Judah would have its southern capital in Jerusalem. And these kingdoms would be at war with each other, and these kingdoms would be at war with other people. So, so the unity of God's people is now divided. And the problem is, both of these kingdoms would continue to wander. Both of these kingdoms would step away from God's commands. So for Israel, they have 20 kings, and every one of those 20 kings are evil, and they do wrong. One after another, they continue to follow the evil ways of Jeroboam. And in verse 26 of chapter 12 there, it says, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me in return to King Rehoboam. So after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, if it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, and the people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. And Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. So Jeroboam now leads his people into idolatry. He leads his people, the northern kingdom, to worship other things than the one true God. And this continues. That even when we get to King Pekah, who is the second to last king of the northern tribe, here's what it says in 2 Kings 15. It says that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had called Israel to commit. So for 200 years, the kingdom of Israel follows the legacy of Jeroboam. Think about that for a moment. How would you want your name attached in a history book to evil? That king after king after king after king in Israel followed what Jeroboam did and worshipped these other gods. And then in 2 Kings 17, Israel evades and it lays siege for three years to the kingdom of Israel. And after three years, it captures the capital of Samaria, it captures the northern tribe of Israel, and it carries them off into exile. And in 2 Kings, God speaks about why this happened. 2 Kings chapter 17. He said, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worship other gods and follow the practices of the nations the Lord has driven them out, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. So God said, look, you sinned, I brought you out and you rebelled against me. And in verse 14 of that same chapter, he says, you are a stiff-necked people. He, he refers to them often as, as stubborn donkeys that refuse to heed the Lord's commands. And then in 18 and 19 of that same chapter, it says, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. And only the tribe of Judah was left and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord. And they followed the practices Israel had introduced. 
So God says, look, Israel, I told you what to do. You disobeyed. And as a result, I'm sending punishment in the form of the Assyrians. And they come in and they conquer them and they take them off into exile. And now we only have the southern tribe of Judah left. But Judah is not much better in the same process. Now, to be a little bit fair, Judah also has a set of 20 kings uh, that continue to rule. They've got some kings that are both good and bad, and they actually had some kings that did really well, that for moments of Judah's history was able to temporarily point people back to following God. And so as a result, they last a little bit longer than the northern tribe of Israel. So, so people like Hezekiah and Josiah, you know, they, they were really good kings. That, that is, before Hezekiah had come, the temple had fallen into to disarray and um, he, he desires to fix it up. And so he removes the high places, the sacred stones, the Asherah poles, and he says, we're going to follow God. And in 2 Kings 18, it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all of the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and didn't stop, but he kept the commands that the Lord had given Moses. And so there's this temporary moment of goodness, and then the bad kings come in, and they start to fall off again. And then Josiah comes along, and Josiah sees the same thing, and he says, what has happened to the temple of our God? And, and in the process of fixing up the temple, it was so bad that the book of the law got lost. They literally were not reading God's word anymore. It had gotten stuffed behind some, some, some lampstand or table, and all of these boxes probably just covered over it. And so in the process of cleaning this out, they find it, and they read it to Josiah, and Josiah is broken over this, and he humbles himself, and he says, we have to read this book of the law to everybody. Our people need to hear God's word. And so in 2 Kings 22, it says, because your heart was responsive, you humbled yourself before the Lord, and you heard what I have spoken against this place. They would become a curse and be laid waste, but because you tore your robes and you wept in my presence, I have also heard you, declares the Lord. I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried. Your eyes will not see the disaster that I'm going to bring on this place. So God says, look, I was about ready to destroy these people, but because of what you did, I'm going to put a temporary hold on that. I'm going to stop the destruction of Judah here. Because again, you humbled yourself. However... The next four kings after Josiah commit evil, and God says, enough's enough. I, I, I've had it with these people. And they will face the same fate as Israel. Zedekiah, the last king, it says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all of this happened to Jerusalem and, Ju and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. So in 586 BC, the Babylonians now come in and they conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and they take away God's people. So the Israelites, again, were like, we want a human king. And God says, it's not going to go well for you. But they persist and say, but we want a human king. And God says, fine. And so what do they do? Again, they get, they get Saul, David, Solomon, and then Solomon's awful and the kingdom splits. And now they have all these other human kings. And all these people do is lead them into a place of idolatry and sin and evil. 
And if we just finish the story like this, if we just say good riddance to them, they got what they deserved, we're missing a big chunk of the story right now. Because we could easily look at this and go, well, God told them and God's just waiting for them to fall apart. And he's just got his arms crossed. And once they fall, he goes, see, I told you this would happen. Now you're exiled. Please get out of here. See, that's only a portion of what's happening during this time. And this is the part that I want us to really focus on here. Because as this entire time is going on, God is sending his prophets. God is sending people to speak to the kings and to the people of, of Israel and speak to the people of Judah about what's going on. And he sends prophet after prophet after prophet. Now, I know a lot of times when we think of prophecy, we think of some fortune teller with a crystal ball that's able to predict the future. And to some extent, that's what these prophets did. But a prophet's job was to speak the word of God to now God's people. So God speaks to them and says, here's what I need you to tell my people. And more often than not, a prophet's words were not very gentle. A prophet's words were not often seasoned with salt and and grace. Typically, a prophet came with a message of correction that you have to get your act together or something bad is going to happen to you. And and in our Bibles, the the prophets come after all of the history, right? So you've got the, the book of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then we have the prophets. And so a lot of times when we read the prophets, we don't really understand the context because the prophets are just kind of seen as this like group of people that are speaking at some random point in time. But the reality is the prophets are interdispersed with what is going on with the fall of the different kingdoms. And so I want you to hear some of these words from people like Hosea and Amos and and Jeremiah. Hosea in chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God. There's only cursing and lying, murder, stealing and adultery. They break all the bounds and bloodshed follows. And in 12 and 13, he says, my people consult a wooden idol. A diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They're unfaithful to their God and they sacrifice on mountaintops and burn offerings. Amos chapter 5. He says, you who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And in verse 11, he says, you trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Zephaniah, he says, woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous. Her priests perform profane the sanctuary and do violence of the law. So, so prophet after prophet after prophet is like, guys, you are wandering from your Lord, your God. You, you are committing acts of sin. You are unjust. Your leadership is horrible. You are ungrateful. You are selfish people. And you need to stop and get back on the right path with God. And they said prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. But a lot of times that's all we hear about the prophets. 
We just, we just see the, the, the finger shaking at them. But when we read the prophets, there's something also that happens in this. Because every prophet, as they bring a message of correction and destruction and condemnation, they also bring a message of hope and restoration. And sometimes in our lives, it can be tough to hear the goodness when we feel like all we're doing is hearing the bad stuff. Because for every prophet that speaks about that, they offer words of hope and grace. Hosea says this. He says, my people are determined to turn for me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. But he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? This is just another name for God's people. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed with me in me and all of my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. No, I will not devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you, and I will not come in wrath. Now those two cities mentioned, Adma and Zeboiim, they were surrounding cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, there were other cities that were destroyed in that destruction. And he's saying here, he says, look, you deserve to be punished. But I have a heart of compassion for you. You, you, you deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. But my heart breaks for you. And I can't do that. I can't bring my full wrath against you. In Amos 5, he, he says, seek me and live. He just tells them, seek God and you're going to live in this. Zephaniah. He says, gather together, gather yourselves, you shameful nation. Before the decree takes effect and the day passes like windblown chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. He says, guys, I know what's coming. He says, get together, repent, cry out, humble yourselves. And just maybe God will relent. There's time. Please, there is time left. In the words of Joel, he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Joel says, guys, look, I know you go about ripping your clothes and, and putting, putting ash on your head and sackcloth and crying out to God. And God's like, look, I see right through that. I need your heart. And Joel says, guys, rend your heart. Repent. Turn back to him. But we know the outcome. What do they do? They continue to sin, and they sin, and they sin. Despite all of the prophets that come along, they keep sinning till God says, I've had enough. And he gets rid of the northern tribe of Israel, and he gets rid of the southern tribe of Judah. But here's what I find the real kicker out of this. 
Because again, we look at this and go, yes, God, they should be punished. I mean, you warned them. They refused to turn and repent. There's nothing left. But what does God say in Jeremiah? He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back. For I know the plans I have, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. I will be founded by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all of the nations and places where I have banished you. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God says, look, I'm going to send you here for 70 years. And in that 70 years of exile, your hearts are going to change. And you're going to cry out to me. And you're going to say, God, we're sorry. And God says, and I will bring you back. Because I made a promise to you long ago that I would redeem you and save you. I, I made a promise in the garden. And I am not going to go back on that promise. So for 400 years, you have two kingdoms that walk away from God. And God reminds them of who he is. And he warns them of what's going to happen. And for 400 years, they ignore everything that God says. And God punishes them. And then after 70 years, he says, okay, that's enough. You can come back. That's, that's how this story works. They rebel for 400 years and they get 70 years of punishment. I mean, it seems like they should at least get 400, right? But what did we already read about God? What did the prophets say? God is what? He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding in love. See, God, God's heart is always for his children. God's heart is for that longing embrace. God's heart says, I will do whatever I have to do to bring my children home. And you know what? We know that to be true. Because what did God do for us? He sent Jesus Christ. And we're told in Romans 5, 8, that while we are sinners, he died for us. There is no greater example of love than giving up your life for someone. And when did God do it for us? While we were in a state of sinfulness. When the Israelites were in rebellion against God in their state of sinfulness, what did he say? He said, I'm going to bring you back. Because I love you. See, the story of the divided kingdom is really a story of our divided heart. Because we may not worship a, a statue and we may not go to some high place and, and set out sacred stones. But every day that we live in this earth, there are things that call to our hearts. Things that call to us that say, worship me instead. 
put God behind you and put me on the pedestal. And that's what we do. We take God off and we, we worship this thing over here. And then God calls to us. And we go, oh my gosh. I've rebelled against God and I've despised his goodness. And God puts things in our path. He, he puts his word and he says, go back to my word. Read what it has to, say, has to say to you about how you have wandered. And God brings the people of his church into our lives. And, and he says, you're sinning against God. Please go back to him. And God tells us that as long as there is breath in our lungs, as long as we are alive in this world, we can always come back to him. And it doesn't matter what we've done or how bad we are. It doesn't matter how many times we keep wandering. God says, the moment you repent, I am there waiting for you. But to also bring another word of prophetic voice here, we need to consider those words of Hebrews. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment... So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting. We live this earth once. That is it. And when we die, we stand before the judgment of God. At that point, there is no second chance. There is no do-over. There is no purgatory. There is no reincarnation that we get ourselves out of. And when we stand before the judgment of God on that day, we're going to stand on one of two things. We're either going to stand on the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or we're going to have rejected that and stand on our own merit and our own good works, which are really just filthy rags. But God made a promise to his children and he made a promise to us that in Jesus Christ that he says to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you accept Christ, he is your father and you are his child. And when you stand before the heavenly throne room, he says your bedroom awaits. Come and enjoy and so when we think about the words of the prophets, when we think about the divided kingdom, let us not fall into the trap of Jeroboam. Let us not follow in the idolatry and the sins of this world, but let us be free of that. Let us heed the words of the prophets and rend our hearts to God and be set free from captivity. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that the words of the prophets can be hard in our lives. We know that the words of a, of a prophet can be challenging to our soul. God, we know that when we read your book, your holy word, it can convict us. And that's what it should do. Because, God, we are rebellious. We are stiff-necked. We are stubborn donkeys. 
that as many times as you hold out your hand of goodness to us, we cast it aside and say that we know better, that we want to follow something else that we believe is going to bring us happiness or joy or betterment of our lives. But Lord, I thank you that for all of our rebellion, you give us hope, you give us grace. You and your compassion, Father, are willing to bring us back. So I thank you that we've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in bondage to man or into Satan's schemes or the deceptiveness of what this world has to offer. Because, Father, there is a freedom that belongs in you for all of eternity. Amen.